Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we're discussing David Fincher's Gone Girl, starring Ben Affleck as archetypal deadbeat husband Nick Dunn, whose life turns on its head when his wife Amy, played by Rosamund Pike, goes missing on their fifth anniversary. The film also stars a murderer's row of supporting actors, including Carrie Coon, Kim Dickens, Neil Patrick Harris, and Tyler Perry. And uh, I forgot to put this in the intro, but of course, this is based on the best-selling novel by Gillian Flynn, which we will also be discussing in this episode. And this is a Patreon request from Joshua. So thank you so much to Joshua. This movie is a favorite of both of ours. So we are very excited to have the excuse to talk about it this week. I did rewatch it yesterday and this morning, even though I really didn't need to because this was the fourth time I'd seen this movie and like, I remembered it very well. But it was like having the excuse to go back to it just to have it fresh in my mind was really fun. But like, we have literally watched this movie together. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a fun movie. Yeah. Pure entertainment in this film about crime, murder, (laughs) horrible relationships. Well, and we talked about David Fincher's most recent film, Mank, around a year ago, and we did not like that movie at all. I think it's probably his worst film. I think there's one I still haven't seen. I mean, yeah, we've we've erased the memory, clearly, Morgan, of uh, the alien film he made, which is his worst film. (laughs) Yeah, I, I haven't seen that one. But this is a good excuse to talk about the other kind of movie he makes, which is like, pulpy genre stuff. He basically will do like serious prestige movies and then this kind of thing. And I think it like he's kind of better at this and we will get into why as we talk about this movie which um as we said at the end of last week's episode, I think Zodiac which is kind of like the perfect nexus between those two impulses like the sort of high drama and pulp stuff is by far my favorite Fincher movie and I think it's definitely his best, but this is easily number 2. For me, like, I just love this movie. And um, it's very fun while also having, like, substantive things to say, which is hard to pull off. And of course, a lot of the credit for that goes to Gillian Flynn, who wrote both the novel and the adaptation, which is quite unusual. I feel like people adapting their own work, A, doesn't happen very often, and B, frequently does not go well. I mean, usually it's kind of a sign of a megalomaniac at play, which is not what's happening here. It's someone who's very talented. Yeah, and this was the first time she'd done any screenwriting. And the screenplay, which she did like work on with Fincher once he came on board the project, is just like, great. She did a really, really good job. But to give a little bit of background on the book, which I'm sure most people listening to this will like remember this phenomenon very well, because it was such a big deal. This was published in 2012, almost 10 years ago, and was just like a mega phenomenon. I can recall very few books in like my adult life having this kind of effect. I found a statistic that 2 million copies were sold in the first year, which for those of you not familiar with the publishing industry is like a ludicrous figure. That is such a high number. I remember like I of course, was living in New York at this time. And there was a period of time where I swear to God, like every single person on the subway was holding a paperback edition of this book and reading it. And every once in a while, there will be a book like that where like, you just see it on the subway all the time. And that's how you know something is really sort of passed through the realm of just like a publishing thing. It's like everywhere. But this was beyond even that. Like it was just all over the place. And I read it in 2013, I believe. I took it on vacation and I remember being in like the woods in Ireland and like I read this book in like one day because I just could not put it down. And I do like mystery novels, but I don't read them very often. And the fact that I read this at all is a testament to how big a deal it was because this isn't something I would normally pick up. And I just was like consumed by it. Like there's a reason that it was such a big deal. Like it's addictive. And has this, like, feminist element, too, which I think, for a lot of women reading the book, was a big part of the appeal. So because this was a while ago, I don't remember all the details of, like, the little plot things that changed with the adaptation. But when we get more into the spoilers, I will 
talk a bit about how I think certain things in the tone changed a bit. But overall, like, I think it's a great adaptation. Like, it's very effective. So last week when we said we were doing this uh, this movie, I was just thinking to myself, like, have I read the book? Maybe I have. And then I remembered when I watched this movie, I was so unaware of the plot that I didn't know, like, the twist was coming. So it was, like, the most amazing experience to watch this film, like, not knowing what was going to happen. And there's, like, a sort of convection point, like, one third of the way through the story. <laughs> and it was so fucking good. I was just like... Oh my god! I'm also really glad that I watched this kind of without any awareness of the discourse around it, because obviously I would have been aware that this was a phenomenally popular and ubiquitous book, but as Morgan said, there's a lot of kind of conversation about the feminist or anti-feminist themes of this book, and like, oh, is it bad that the protagonist is a bad person? And is it like intrinsically misogynist and all this stuff? And it's like a very circular kind of argument, which we will be getting into, which also has become far more prevalent in like all conversations about pop culture in the last like five years or so even in 2014 it would have been very intense and I'm glad I wasn't aware of that because it allowed me to just sort of enjoy this film on a pure entertainment basis and in that sense it functions extremely well in addition to I think you know it is actually really smart and I would not be like oh we can we can definitely like divide this kind of story into a binary uh, division between sexist and not sexist I'm sure there was discourse about that when it came out. Like, certainly there were think pieces written. But I don't remember there being a ton because I think the book was so popular that it wasn't like it was a new thing. Yeah, right? I mean, the like, discourse everyone happened already around the book. Yeah. But why don't we talk a little bit about how the movie came into being? So I was reading a bit about this and unsurprisingly... This was already getting shopped around Hollywood before the book had even been published, which will happen when agents and publishing companies have a novel they think will A, be popular, and B, are like, this clearly will make a great movie. They just send it around everywhere. So I had forgotten that this is one of the like famous recent casting stories of someone who didn't get cast in a movie. Reese Witherspoon is a producer on the film and like picked up the book pretty quickly. And she was originally attached to play Amy, the Rosamund Pike character. And then I think David Fincher eventually was like, no, (laughs) which I truly cannot imagine this working with Reese. I mean, she's very good. She probably, it probably would have been fine, but obviously Rosamund Pike is, is correct. Yeah. But as we were talking, mentioned earlier with Gillian Flynn, like writing the screenplay, the book was such a big deal. Like, I don't know if this is before or after it came out, but like she basically negotiated that she was going to get to write it, which is highly unusual, particularly because she didn't have any screenwriting credits. And Fincher came on the project after there was already a draft. And then they worked together on it and did a lot of revisions. But this was not a project where like this was a passion of his. Like he was obsessed with it and really wanted to make it like with Bank or Zodiac. He was kind of a hired gun. And I think it kind of like works really well for that reason because he's just really good at his job. Right. And is it imbuing it with like his weird obsessions? It's just like a good fit for him. And he just did it. And, like, obviously is a total obsessive, as evidenced by the fact that he does, like, 50 takes of everything. But it's an example of, like, the Hollywood system actually working really well, I think. And, like, someone thought he would be good for this, and he was, and they just made the movie. And, like, kind of straightforward, you know? (laughs) But... The discussions that they were having about the revisions sound like really entertaining. There was an interview with Gillian Flynn in Vulture where she talked about like her process writing the novel and then working on the screenplay where like the, I guess the interviewer asked like, are you similar to Amy in terms of like any personality stuff? And she is saying that she was like really obsessive in terms of researching like how the mystery in the novel would like functionally work. And she had lists everywhere. I tested everything. By the end, I was asking my editor, can we do just do an addendum where we pretend it's by Amy and I'll answer all the other questions you have? Which is just like an amazing concept given what the book is like. But the, I mean, should we just, can we just spoil the plot? Like, I think everyone listening to this knows what oh, happens in Gone yeah, Girl. Yeah, let's just yeah. go ahead. So 
Amy obviously like fakes her own death halfway through, or you find out halfway through that this is what's happened. And in the book, she like slits open her arm and just like pour like blood just comes gushing out all over the floor. And David Fincher was like, that's too risky. You could pass out, like you might cut one of your big arteries and die. Like obviously she would have to be using what the medical equipment for like drawing blood, I'm spacing on the the word. And like, that's way better. And Gillian Floyd was like, well, no, but it's supposed to be this sort of like pulpy thing. And he was like, no, no, no. It's unrealistic. Like, this has to be realistic. And she was like, okay. (laughs) And then he was just completely obsessive about everything needing to be plausible. And that she hadn't really been expecting that because so many of his movies are these kind of like over the top gothic things, but that he thinks really intensely about everything being realistic. And I think that that is part of what makes the movie so appealing on top of obviously the plot, which comes from her is that like the whole thing just feels so unbelievably well felt out, which is like, again, them kind of combining their different strengths. Yeah. I mean, he's famously very good at portraying people doing tasks. Yes. And also like in his movies, it's never interesting tasks. It's always researching (laughs) or kind of putting together some sort of investigation And this movie is not something you would think of along those lines, but that story you just told is very much kind of in keeping with his skill in that department. And, like, the Amy character is... I mean, she's obsessively meticulous. Right, which he also is. Not to say that he's, like, a psychopath the way the character is, but it's, again, it's kind of a perfect fit for him in terms of depicting someone who is thinking ahead and thinking about the whole picture of what she's doing in an unbelievably intense way that like most people's brains, even if you are like highly organized, just don't work that way at all. Yeah. It's really interesting to kind of compare this to his remake of the girl with the dragon tattoo. Have you seen that? Yes. I saw it in the theater. So this was like a while ago. I really Um, didn't like it because I, I really enjoyed those books and I really liked the original Swedish movie. And Fincher's version obviously is more polished and it's more expensive, but in some ways that kind of made it worse because it's meant to be kind of more punk and messy and it didn't work out because like it didn't feel like he had that same understanding of the characters. And in this, I mean, presumably because the screenplay is so good, you know, it's far more kind of emotionally sincere and authentic. And I mean sincere, not in the sense that these are like nice people, obviously, (laughs) but it feels more kind of natural and believable, which is pretty difficult considering the fact that the protagonist of this movie is a huge freak. Well, we talked in the Mank episode about the thing he does with the cinematography where he shoots slightly too much and then will like crop the image a tiny bit so that it's perfectly oriented correctly. He, and like if there's seems a pan. He truly unbearable, which is strange because he's also quite funny. Like he's a, he has a sense of humor, but as a person to work with, oh God. <laughs> I know. I mean, I obviously do not know this man at all. I feel like people talk about him like as an individual very fondly, but I agree like working with him, I feel like I would lose my mind because he just seems like such an obsessive perfectionist that I would just lose it. But I think we said this on the Mank episode too, that like that obsessive sort of perfectionism really works aesthetically in this movie because that's what this character is all about. Yeah, I mean, the whole movie is all about people falsifying and or analyzing crime scenes. Yes. And it's about sort of like performing perfection emotions or a perfection and like this sort of life that behind the scenes is a huge mess so the having this sort of sheen and polish on the surface of the movie which i don't even know how intentional that is for him because he seems to make every fucking movie this way now and like in mank it did not serve that story at all but just like as it happens in this one like it's perfect it's exactly correct for what's going on with these characters. So let's talk about the characters a bit and the casting, because this is like one of the most genius pieces of casting like ever in a movie. Perfect. Amazing casting. (laughs) Well, the quote from Fincher about Ben Affleck is just because it's perfect casting doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, which like, there you go. 
Correct. I can't argue. to Ben Affleck, who is so often cast poorly and cast in bad things. Yeah, I mean, this is so clearly his best role to me. Like, I don't think there's any competition. We just talked about him in The Last Duel, where I think he's genuinely fantastic. And the other two movies I mentioned in that podcast, where he's doing a similar kind of thing really well, are Shakespeare in Love and... Goodwill Hunting, which is like Goodwill Hunting in particular, I think he's really, really great. But those are smaller parts. Often, like he's doing something kind of over the top and comedic with them, which like he's really good at. But this is the one role of his that I can think of where he's doing like a real serious piece of work and it just comes off well as opposed to being like, I don't buy this or like this is just not interesting. And the combination of him, A, just like genuinely doing a good job. Like, he's excellent in this part. And B, the, like, playing on his sort of star persona is irresistible. It's just perfect. It is so good. Yeah, just his general aura of a middle-aged hunk who's been coasting on his looks and privilege for 15 years. (laughs) Yep. I kind of had wanted to listen to the commentary track that David Fincher did for this and then didn't get around to it. But there are like famous lines from this where he's like, yeah, Ben just has this face that's like inherently not trustworthy or like the bits where he has to like pull a cell phone out of his pocket to like secretly text the much younger girlfriend. Like he just did that really naturally. Like it's so pitchy. Well, isn't there that anecdote with Fincher being like, yeah, Ben Affleck has like two cell phones and I always find that very sus. (laughs) (laughs) And like, there is just something inherently a bit, I don't want to use the word sleazy exactly about him because that's not actually quite what I mean. But like, there's a fakeness to him that is, you can just tell, right? And... I don't even mean that in terms of, like, what his genuine personality is, because, like, I don't have any fucking clue. I don't know this man. But all movie stars are performing something, right? Like, we don't know what any of these people are like. But if you're really good at that, you do that successfully. And we can't really tell that it's fake. And with him, you can tell. Like, Well, yeah, because there's, there's no kind of effective image construction but he also yeah. is extremely public, but not in a public way where it's like, oh, I'm intentionally exposing my emotions. It's just that he likes to be in front of the paparazzi because it is possible to not be in front of the paparazzi as a, cele- as a celebrity. There are ways. And he is so in front of the paparazzi. Every one of his major relationships has been like celebrity gossip central. 20 years ago, he was fully in an entire Jennifer Lopez music video, which was all about them literally being spied on by the paparazzi. Then through the pandemic, his key role in the public eye was constantly being photographed by the paparazzi with his new girlfriend. And then when they broke up, he got back together again with Jennifer Lopez. (laughs) And like kind of in between those two Jennifer Lopez bookends, he made this movie, which is about this guy who is like hounded by the media after being in the middle of this like true crime fiasco. Yeah. And what I always think about is, again, as I said a couple weeks ago, when I was growing up in suburban Massachusetts, like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were like the gods of that area in terms of like famous celebrities. And then the sort of inheritor of that role was Chris Evans, who is from my town, who is very famous. And like, Occasionally, you'll see a paparazzi picture of Matt Damon, but very infrequently. And similarly, like, Chris Evans, you do not... Is he dating someone? I have no idea. Who knows? And he spends most of his time, like, in suburban Massachusetts, where the paparazzi are not hanging out. But those are two very, very famous men from, like, similar positions. You do not see pictures of them. We don't know what Matt Damon's tattoos are. He could have a big tattoo (laughs) for all we know. (laughs) Like, or I know he has kids, but, like, I could not tell you what their names are, what they look like. I have no fucking clue. And Ben Affleck's whole life has just been like put forth for everyone to see. And it is this like tension between, I mean, this gets back to his compulsion to be in these big blockbuster movies, right? Like taking the Batman role right after winning Best Picture. Clearly he needs attention, but then it's like a weird curse 
also. And that is all completely manifested in this character who his wife goes missing. Immediately, there's a ton of both media and police attention because like everyone wants to know what's happened to her. And she's this like beautiful blonde white woman who is literally the inspiration for this series of very popular children's books that her parents wrote when she was a kid. Which is kind of the main reason why I this film and also the book presumably doesn't really function as an archetypal feminist narrative where it's like, oh, well, you know, you've, you've got to discuss this in terms of like her representing womankind. And it's like, she is very squarely characterized as like an extremely privileged, attractive blonde woman. <laughs> right. And I do want to talk more about like the true crime stuff later, because I feel like in the seven years since this has come out, there's just so many more layers. Yeah. But anyway, put a pin in that. And he just can't stop himself from, like, smiling for the cameras. I mean, the famous image of him, like, smiling next to the, like, Amy is missing poster, right? Or, like, taking a selfie with some random woman or just continuing to meet up with the student of his that he's sleeping with, who is played by, in fact, by um, Emily Ratajkowski, which I had no idea at the time. And you do feel some sympathy for him because it's obviously, like, he's clearly not just like, I love this. It's, it's, it is a sort of compulsive thing. And in a weird way, it's kind of a, like, stereotypically feminine trait, right? To be like, I'm just trying to be nice to people. And, like, you're just gonna be smile and be polite. And, like, whatever. But it completely backfires on him. Because it makes him look like a fucking asshole. Which he is. <laughs> Which, again, made Affleck perfect for this part. I mean, I don't know if he's an asshole in real life. I don't really care. But, like, he just conveys that sense of, like, dickishness. Meanwhile, Rosamund Pike, who we've not discussed very much yet, but I love, you found this great quote from her. She obviously, at this point, far less famous than than Reese Witherspoon and, you know, still less famous than Reese Witherspoon. But um, the quote you found was, Rosamund was someone that I had seen in four or five different movies over 10 years, and I never got a beat on her, which is David Fincher speaking. And he says, I never got a sense of who she was, and I pride myself on being able to watch actors and sort of know instinctively what their utility belt is. And I don't have that with Rosamund. I didn't know what she was building off of. There was an opacity there and it was interesting. And I love this quote because my favourite fact about Rosamund Pike, an actress I enjoy tremendously, is that her real date of birth is classified. (laughs) If you go on Wikipedia, it does give a date of birth, but it is not her real date of birth. And if you email her publicist and say, what's Rosamund Pike's birthday? They'll say, that's private. Uh, she's just great. She's a British actress. She started out doing quite a lot of sort of historical stuff. So kind of Pride and Prejudice. The thing that I saw her in first was the 2002 Bond movie Die Another Day. As anyone who has ever been a Bond girl immediately has a great place in my heart forever. And then she kind of has like gone back and forth between American movies and like British more independent films she's never been someone who does like really strange movies she does quite mainstream films some of which are good and some of which are not but um I feel like Gone Girl is kind of her iconic role well she did a lot of supporting parts before yeah this she was has a small supporting role in an education the Carrie Mulligan movie from 2009 that was like Carrie Mulligan's big breakout and she's fantastic in that, but no one thinks about an education and is like, Rosamund Pike, obviously great in that. Like, everyone thinks about Carrie Mulligan, as they should. And she's really lovely in the Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice, but she's, of course, again, not like the first thing you're going to think about when you think of that movie. And I'm sure she had played sort of colder characters before this because she'd been working a lot, again, doing smaller parts. And like, I certainly have not seen all of those movies, but I certainly would not have associated her with this kind of role before. Well, her Bond girl role is ice themed. Well, there you go. (laughs) Cannot say I've seen that movie. And I think probably part of the like exciting thing about this for certainly American audiences. And like, she went on to be, I think the only Oscar nomination for this movie, which is absurd, but um, like, it just felt really different to me. And aside from her career specifically, like this is just not a part that women get to play aside from the specifics of the role, which is obviously very unusual and strange. Like that kind of just like 
unpleasant. I mean, it definitely makes me wonder. Although, obviously, there's like, I'm sure there's loads of actresses who are like desperate for this kind of role. I wonder if there were like maybe some A-listers who eventually turned it down because they were concerned it might damage their image. I would certainly believe that. I think she wound up auditioning for it also, which is interesting for a movie of this size. Normally... I think you would have people who would get offered a part like this. And like, I'm sure Ben Affleck was offered it. So I wonder also if Fincher was seeing auditions and just was like, I can't, this isn't quite right. And then like found the right person because she's great. And like, I, again, I was watching this again uh, the past couple of days and I've seen this movie several times. And so I wasn't surprised by anything she was doing, but there's just something about that performance that is so electric and magnetic. Well, there's so often this sense of like, she's got this sense of watchfulness and stillness, but also kind of there's amusement behind the watchfulness. And when she's playing stuff that's false, it just like works really well. And it's a great twist on the sort of classic Hitchcock blonde roles because narratively it's very much like that, but it's flipping the script because the whole point is like, she's not the vulnerable one because as we were about to get into... While the first section of this narrative is all about this sort of classic true crime thing where she's gone missing and the husband wants to find her, he's getting kind of blamed for her disappearance and like more and more evidence is coming through. We then see what's actually happened, which is that Amy has staged this entire thing and you see her going on the run and like disguising herself. And the latter half of the movie is kind of, we see what's happening with Amy and then we also see what's happening with Nick with this investigation where like, he is just completely hapless in this scenario and his sister who's played by Carrie Coon is trying to support him but also is kind of like starting to feel a bit suspicious of him because Amy's left behind all these clues like she's written this diary that's kind of alleging domestic abuse earlier in their relationship and it really is kind of like very subtle and well-conceived plot to make him look terrible and her whole motive is that you know she has shaped her life around this guy who is just like fundamentally boring and there's this really (laughs) there's this really like famous monologue from the book which is like the cool girl monologue where she kind of talks about how you know she got together with this guy and it's not like it's a romance for the ages but like they are a well-suited couple and it's all about how you know the cool girl always like make sure she's like eating pizza but always stays thin like she loves sports and video games and she's really sexy but she's relaxed and all this stuff like I'm sure most of the audience is familiar with this speech and like then after they've got married he's moved her to the suburbs in like Missouri and she's kind of around in this beige nothingness space with nothing to do and is just getting increasingly frustrated with this uninteresting guy who He's not terrible, but he's not really caring for her particularly. And her entire interior life is just completely removed from anything he could possibly conceive of. So it, of course, comes as this huge shock when she has created this Machiavellian conspiracy to disappear herself and therefore bring a ton of of attention down on the family. Yeah, so as I said, I don't remember all the like nitty gritty plot details that got changed from the book to the novel. Although I think it's more that like stuff just got left out because the novel's very long and obviously all that wasn't going to be able to fit into the movie. But the thing that I felt the most watching it that sort of like felt different from the book is that when you're reading the book, this was my experience anyway, Nick just feels way more sympathetic for much more of the novel because I believe it's first person, the whole thing. So you're switching back and forth between their perspectives And he's stuck in this situation where, like, his wife has concocted this heinous scheme that he's trapped in, which, even if he is an asshole, is, like, horrifying, right? Like, this is a nightmare. And you do get a lot more of, like, his relationship with his mom, which Gillian Flynn talked in one of these interviews about, like, she really wanted to be in the movie more and they just didn't have any time. And, like, they moved back to Missouri because his mom is sick, not because, like, he just decides that he wants to move back. And so it is this kind of crisis. And the marriage is just not capable of sort of dealing with it, largely because Amy is a nightmare. And the fact that the female lead of the book is this kind of monstrous figure is kind of, is really provocative in a way. And then you get to the end and this scene is in the 
movie two, of course, that's really important. She's sort of lied about him physically abusing her and being really threatening. And he really freaks out right at the end of the book and like does physically throw her against the wall and call her a cunt. And you're sort of like, oh, you are the guy who like, maybe not at like, obviously he didn't kill her. But it's this kind of reversal. But you really do feel for him in a way that like, I don't think you ever do in the movie. Like he's clearly an asshole from the beginning, even if he's not a murderer. And conversely, like Rosamund Pike is just so watchable and yes. so like engaging. Well, it's, it's classic sort of this villain character that's so compelling because she's so yep. efficient and it's so satisfying to see her carry out her evil schemes. And yes. also there's the fact that it's extremely satisfying to see this just shit man get his comeuppance. And obviously the whole thing is like massive amounts of overkill because he has never done anything that's that bad. The magic of this story is that he is just so completely banal and average. He is an inattentive husband. That's like that's like literally his crime is that he's not that great. <laughs> Which is such an amazing thing to be the target of a revenge thriller. Yes. And like she really snaps and loses it when she sees him with this younger woman and finds out that he's cheating on her, which obviously is an experience that like many women have in one way or another. But crucially, the reason why Amy's pissed is because she has put so much work into like constructing her persona as the perfect wife. And she's like, I fucking moved to Missouri. I'm wearing these beige outfits. I'm staying thin. This is such bullshit. Like it's worth nothing. (laughs) Right. I I mean, it's an ego. Yeah. It's an ego injury, right? And like, most women who find out that their husbands are cheating do not stage their own deaths and, like, frame them for murder. Like, it's such outrageous overkill. But I think that that's kind of the genius of the book, right? Is that it does take these feelings that I think a lot of women have and then spins them out into these enormous, sort of outrageous Absurd behaviors. Yep. And I think the cool girl monologue is really vital in the book too even like i think again she's i don't want to say sympathetic because i don't think the movie is saying like actually she has a point it's just that she's more fun in the book because you get to actually watch it but in both that monologue serves a really important function and in one of these interviews too gillian flynn says like it validates her a little bit It explains where she's coming from, but it also explains the tremendous pressure that's on women, not in a boo-hoo, poor us kind of way, but acknowledging that idea that there's something wrong with the fact that we're constantly willing to make ourselves over for men. And again, without suggesting that like any of this woman's behavior is reasonable in any way, the book is getting at real feelings that people have. And I think obviously that is part of why it was so popular, right? Because like it connected with people. And I like she talks in this interview about how it's like gratifying and just sort of like crazy that that term has become just like part of the vernacular. And I totally use that talking to people like cool girl, like that's just a thing that you can say and like everyone knows what you mean now, which is a really surreal legacy for a book to have, right? And The just, like, total inversion of that in the sense that, like, this woman you married who you thought was, like, the personification of all your dreams becoming the absolute nightmare and, like, destroying your life is part of what's fun about the movie, obviously. We should talk as well about the supporting cast. The main one of whom is, of course, uh, Neil Patrick Harris, This has also got a great little role for Tyler Perry as Nick's lawyer, which is one of the finest unexpected cameos. But Neil Patrick Harris plays this guy who is Amy's ex-boyfriend from when they were like much younger. And he's obsessed with her. And she ends up going to him when she's on the run. And he also turns out to be much darker than he seems. He's this really rich, wealthy guy. And she goes to his kind of secluded house where he essentially keeps her captive. And uh, she defeats him in truly one of the film's best and most uh, memorable scenes where she seduces him and then fully murders him in bed and covers her body in blood. (laughs) 
It's just one of the best things Fincher has ever done. Yeah. It's so amazing. <laughs> so good. But I think this gets into part of what is also really provocative about this novel and this movie, particularly in a sort of post-Me Too era of talking about these issues, which definitely was not... I mean, of course, all of the ways that these the book and the film were talked about at the time was engaging with this sort of idea of, of like how the feminist discourse was reacting to it. But one of the things I find so interesting about this is that you have this female character who is lying about being like assaulted and raped. Multiple men she sort of accuses of doing this who did not. And that feels like a real taboo because of course most women do not do that. And in terms of real stories of this happening, like you have this sort of like social media push to like believe women who speak out and like all these trolls will be like, oh, they're just lying for attention. And we know that that's not how it works. But like in the context of this movie, I just find it impossible to view this through an, through a universal lens. It's like watching Hannibal or something. It's like, I don't watch this and think it represents anything. <laughs> no, but I think the fact that she's doing it I don't think she's making that choice lightly. And I think that she's trying to say something provocative, not about the specific, the specifics of like women who speak out about these crimes or whatever, because obviously that's not applicable. It's more about the um, way that I think we think about women as these sort of like innocent creatures, particularly this kind of like beautiful white woman. Right. Yeah. And that ties into the true crime stuff, which obviously was totally around seven years ago. And indeed, like hundreds of years ago, like people have always been fascinated by violence and murder, whatever. But yeah, I mean, it's literally in the title. Like she is (laughs) like the character is like definitely over 30, but we're all thinking of her as this blonde, like self-like girl who's tragically vanished. What's happened? Right. And the fact that she is this picture book character, right? The sort of like infantilization of her, even as an adult, like her parents Mm -hmm. keep writing these books when she's grown up. And we obviously see this with real life situations all the time. The just like projection onto young white women who have horrible things happen to them at the expense of really any other stories about anything that go on, right? I mean, earlier Um, this year when that girl went missing and was like murdered by her partner in the national park, I was covering that at work for quite a while because like there was, you know, there was such a kind of breadth of online conspiracy theorizing and the way people were talking about it was so gross because the obsession was kind of so familiar. Like we see this happen so much. It's invariably about young, attractive white women, usually blonde women. Like it's so transparent what's going on. And obviously like in this fictional narrative in Gone Girl, they have this diary to work from, which she's kind of inserted as the perfect piece of evidence. But like in real life, you see people fucking analyzing someone's Instagram posts and YouTube stuff for hidden clues about their abusive relationship. And it's so gross and invasive. Yeah, I mean, I find all that stuff just, like, really gross and upsetting. And I can enjoy a true crime story if it's done interestingly, but I often avoid them because just, like, young murdered women. It's like, I just don't want to deal with this. And part of what I think is so smart about this story is that, again, it's not making any comment on, like, real women who have suffered various things in the world, right? What it's commenting on is the, like, innocence fetish that society has and the way that thing gets activated in this prurient way by the potential thought of violence. Another strength of the movie is obviously that it has a bunch of other female characters, and we should mention those actors as well, who are kind of providing, like, ballast to this central woman who's such a villainous creature, right? So we mentioned Carrie Coon, one of my favorite actors, uh, who is 10 years younger than Ben Affleck and is playing his twit in this movie, which I just... (sighs) Hollywood? (laughs) But she is a very kind of like no-nonsense sort of person. She runs this bar with him in town and does not like Amy at all. 
And she's kind of the movie's voice of reason. Like, the fact that she finds Amy so unappealing is, like, a sign that Amy's bad. Because if Margot is her name, doesn't like her, then, like, there must be something up. Because we can trust Margot. And she's in a ton of the movie because she's kind of, like, the sounding board for Nick. And even though they are definitely not the same age and that casting should not have happened, those scenes work really well because like she's such an incredible actor and like they do have a good sort of sibling vibe i think and the other one who really stands out is just like such a great performance in this film is kim dickens as the like detective who's investigating the murder who is similarly just like absolutely no nonsense has a great expression of disbelief <laughs> i love the oh time. my god she's so funny she's like jesus and- christ are they all serious about this <laughs> So she, I mean, perhaps like unrealistically extremely competent. Yeah, I mean, it's a classic movie cop. (laughs) Yeah, but what I like about that part is that she clearly senses something is off from the get-go. Like, it's all kind of too perfect. Like, there are literally like envelopes that say clue scattered around everywhere. And she's like, what the fuck? Like, this is just so bizarre. But also, of course, the most obvious suspect is the husband in any situation like this and so they're investigating him most directly and you have lots of conversations between her and Affleck where she's kind of on a knife's edge deliberately like the character's clearly intentionally both being kind of sympathetic to him but then she'll ask like a really probing question because she's trying to figure out what's going on and she has a male partner who immediately is like this fucking asshole like he obviously killed her it's so clear that he killed her like we should just arrest him immediately and she's like it's really not how it works like <laughs> i don't know what to tell you <laughs> and it's like you don't get any sense of any kind of personal life or anything she just feels so specific and like a real human which i think is testament both to the script like she's just written really well and the performance is just really really excellent and i think everybody who has a supporting role in this movie does that and so you have these two big sort of movie star performances playing kind of larger than life people in the leads and then everybody else around them i mean you know patrick harris is also playing a total maniac so it's not like he's playing a realistic in quotes person but just like everybody else is kind of in the orbit of the two leads is giving the movie a lot too Tyler Perry is just, like, the most random casting. Like, I don't know how that happened. But he's very good. Like, he's excellent in the film. So, great. Playing a kind of, like, sleazy lawyer who defends, like, murderers. <laughs> I mean, if there's one thing we can all believe Tyler Perry is, it's extremely rich. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. And, like, cunning. Yes. Which I also believe, for sure. And then with the Neil Patrick Harris situation i think that's also done really well because you have this woman who has set up this totally like outrageous you know trap for her husband and nick goes to new york and like meets with this guy she dated briefly who is played delightfully by scoot mcnary whom i love to see for five minutes in any movie who's just like yeah i dated her for a while and i really like, it became a nightmare. Like, she was just too demanding. So I kind of, like, stepped back. And then she, like, framed him for rape. And so he's, like, on the sex offender registry and everything. And that guy clearly is just this sort of hapless person who, like, happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But then you go back to Neil Patrick Harris, who is genuinely a total creep. And, like, absolutely the worst man in the movie. And so... As with the women, the movie's kind of balancing all of these male characters in a smart way. And, like, perhaps he doesn't deserve to be murdered. But the sense of, like, even this woman who seems like she has everything in control, like her money gets stolen at the motel, and then she kind of is up a creek and has to rely on this man who then just wants to control her. And you're kind of like, this it's endless, right? Like, it just goes around and around and around. And without making, like, big statements or, again, having anyone behave particularly admirably because they're all just, like, assholes and fuck-ups. Which, you know, great. I mean, there's so much very smart and often darkly funny commentary going on here. 
inside the structure of just this perfectly constructed thriller. Because the point where she is at Neil Patrick Harris's house is like such a great thriller sequence because she goes to him for help and she has to really quickly sort of figure out to what extent and how she's going to deceive him. But then you realise really quickly that he is not an easy mark. And also his house is basically a fortress because he's this really rich guy who's got like a million security cameras everywhere. So she has to like figure out a way to frame him for rape and then make it look like she's killed him in self-defense and fled his house after he kidnapped her. So like he's the one who ends up taking the rap for like this elaborate crime she's constructed. And it kind of ends with her getting back home and like embracing intentionally publicly in front of her husband's house, which means that the police investigation has to pivot really quickly because you've got the victim back and now she can share her, you know, (laughs) really false story. (laughs) Well, right. And Kim Dickens, the detective, and then Ben Affleck, too, are kind of like, there are a number of things here that really don't (laughs) add up. So, like, she had, like, put a weapon in the fireplace to, again, to frame Nick. Kim Dickens is like, how did this other guy get that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And she's just like, oh, well, I, I just had it. So, and... She claims that Neil Patrick Harris had been, like, keeping her tied up the whole time. And Ben Affleck is like, but, like, how did she have a box cutter to, like, slit his throat if she was tied up the whole time? And they're all just like, just be quiet. Like, just you should be glad that your wife is back. And, of course, that the narrative is more powerful than any logical questions you could poke into it, right? Which is kind of the whole point of what the movie is trying to say, right? That these stories are way more appealing to people than, like, reality. And he, of course, says, like, I'm out of here. Like, there's no way I'm staying married to you. And she's like, oh, yeah? Good luck. Because, like, that won't be happening. And she winds up getting pregnant using um, sperm that he had banked at a fertility clinic. And so his kind of excuse is oh, well, I have to stay for the baby. But as Carrie Coon correctly identifies, like, he's just kind of sucked in to this whole scene, right? And they are weirdly perfect for each other, even though they're miserable. Like, he's obviously gets off on the whole thing. And she now has decided that, like, actually, this is really great because, like, you worked so hard to get me back and had to sort of perform... The, like, version of him, right? Yeah, ending. <laughs> it's really twisted in a really satisfying way. I think the book is more explicit about it really being a commentary on marriage, which, like, the movie is too. But I think the movie is more about just, like, gender in society more broadly. And the book is more about, like, the marriage nightmare. I don't think David Fincher is no. very interested in marriage. does not seem that way. His, his oeuvre does not really... Does not really cover that? But, like, Affleck says at the end, yeah, it was great at the beginning, but then we got married and just, like, we're miserable and, like, whatever. And she's like, well, that's marriage, so, like, deal with it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Good luck to that child. <laughs> Seems doomed. Uh, I mean, there was definitely sort of a bit of chat about doing a sequel, which I don't think they're they're doing. And also it seems really weird, but it does make me really curious what Flynn would do with that sequel because I trust her brain. She's very interesting. She hasn't published... <laughs> what an I know, she be? hasn't published a book in a long time and she was supposedly working on that like Hogarth Shakespeare series where they hired really accomplished novelists to write like modern interpretations of Shakespeare plays. It was announced that she was doing Hamlet years and years and years ago and there's been no movement on that in a while so i would well she did sharp objects and she also did last year the sci-fi tv series right so she's been doing more screenwriting stuff but surely there's a novel that's being worked on yeah i read her first book too a few years ago and enjoyed it a lot obviously she's very talented so uh i hope that there's another novel coming but I'm, sh- you know, once you get sucked into Hollywood and they pay you a bunch of money, I could understand how <laughs> that would be tempting. I mean, she co-wrote Widows. Yes, which I don't think is very good. Uh, 
I realize I am in the minority on that opinion. I don't think that screenplay works. And she and Fincher were supposed to do a Strangers on a Train adaptation, which would be great. But again, that was announced like many years ago, and I don't think it's happening because it seems to have died. But yeah, do we have any do we have any final thoughts on Gone Girl? No, I don't think so. Great movie. I hope people haven't been spoiled by this episode. And if so, go watch. Yeah, the movie I mean, anyway. <laughs> I like. There's no way to talk about this without spoiling it, and I feel like everyone has seen or read Gone Girl. Um, to me, it's hard to like. As you you said, you were like really shocked by the twist. It feels so obvious to me compared to in the book, where, like, I'm sure if I reread the book, it would feel really obvious, but it happens, like, exactly halfway through the novel, and all of a sudden you're just like, what the fuck? And it kind of inevitably (laughs) sort of then, like, is a little bit deflating because the twist is so energizing that, like, the rest of the novel can't quite live up to it. But even if you kind of know what's going on, like, the movie certainly is still really fun. And I, again, I've seen it four times and it's just like incredibly entertaining every every time. But yeah, thank you again to Joshua for sponsoring this episode. This was a ton of fun. Yeah, Gone Girl, very good. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking stats from us in 2021. And we ha- so we have a, a Patreon-only episode that will be up around when this goes up on the Miyazaki film Princess Mononoke, which I just watched for the first time and you have seen multiple times. So that will be fun to talk about as well. And then for our next main feed episode, we will be doing the 2011 Andrea Arnold adaptation of Wuthering Heights. I'm excited to find out what happens in Wuthering Heights. (laughs) It's really only an adaptation of like half of the book. Um, But I recently reread the book to prepare for this episode, which is another Patreon request. And um, I had not read the book since college and I reread it and I was like, this fucking rules. Like, <laughs> Wuthering Heights, great <laughs> book, like shocker. Um, and I remember loving the movie when it came out. So that will be really fun to talk about as well. So um, two very different films, Princess Mononoke and Wuthering Heights, but uh, you will be able to listen. They're both about the outdoors. It's true. This is very true. Um, so yeah, you can find those on Patreon and our main feed. And if you would like to request an episode, you can also do that on Patreon. And that is at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter and letterboxed at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.